0: Everybody and welcome back to another episode of the greatest podcast in American history, aka "Dang Dude, What the Heck Happened to America." My name is Dylan Shear, and I'll be your host through this journey of American history, starting with Reconstruction. Uh, currently, we just finished up World War II, ending somewhat on a downer note. Right, the uh, looking at all the all the ways uh, World War II caused problems for people living in the United States uh, and now we're moving on to the cold war right so this sort of marks the transition uh sort of the second big transition period in american history as a in, you know in this podcast here sort of you can break it up into thirds right sort of looking at reconstruction up until just before world war 1 and then world war 1 through world war 2 and then finally uh, Cold War through the modern day, right? Sort of those three big chunks, those two major transitions of the wars. So that first sort of chunk, right, looking at how the Industrial Revolution prepared the U.S. Uh, to be on the world stage, and then World War One, World War II, the U.S. entering the world stage, and then finally uh, post-World War II, sort of the U.S. being the big player on the world stage, right. And so, looking at how the Industrial Revolution drove all of that, um, so you can sort of think of that first period as being the Industrial Revolution starting, and then reaping the benefits of the Industrial Revolution in the the second period, and then the third period re- realizing sort of the dangers and the destruction of the Industrial Revolution. So, we're going to break up this Cold War podcast into two parts, just like we did for World War One and World War Two. The first podcast will be sort of this general overview, right, looking at some of the big events of the Cold. War. War, looking at the relationship between uh, the U.S. and the Soviet Union, and then the second episode will be looking once again at the sort of the American culture side of it, right? Focusing on what life was like in the United States during the Cold War. And then we'll be moving on into the Civil Rights Movement, and then after that, we'll probably be just doing a podcast a decade, basically up until uh, the 2010s and the 2020s, which I'll probably sort of lump together. Okay, uh, so one of the interesting things about these podcasts is we start moving into the time when people are still alive that we're talking about, right? Previously, pretty much everyone we've mentioned so far um, has been dead uh, for at least a little bit, but now we are moving into to the point in time where people are still alive. So, you know, if I talk smack about somebody and then, you know, don't release any more podcast episodes, you know what happened. Um, okay, so some of the things we are covering today, we're talking about the development of the hostilities of the Cold War, right? If you go back and sort of listen to that first World War II podcast, I talk a little bit about that, but now we'll really dive into how those hostilities developed. I'll talk more about the creation of the UN, the United Nations, the sort of big institution that came out of World War II, right, sort of a much better version, uh, a version that worked of the League of Nations. We'll talk about the Korean War, sort of the first uh, armed conflict of the Cold War, right, one of the main points of this uh, podcast series is that the cold war was not cold. Then we'll also talk about the arms and the space races, uh, sort of these two big, uh, events that really defined early cold, the early cold war period. So I already sort of let loose one of the questions, uh, for this episode, one of the, you know, big things to think about, but, uh, was the cold war really cold? That answer is no, but I'll sort of talk about that. Uh, sorry to spoil Uh, Another question here is, what were the two ideologies pushing the Cold War, and why did people think they were incompatible, right? You probably know the first half of that question off the top of your head, but we'll look at the second one, too. Then finally, how effective was containment policy at stopping the spread of communism? I'll give you uh, another hint there. It's really up for debate. Okay, so before we go into all of that stuff, let's talk about Operation Ajax, uh, this isn't a specific person, but it's very uh, sort of, I think, fundamental to thinking about the way that the uh, the Cold War was working. So Operation Ajax was a plan by the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency, to directly interfere in Iranian politics in order to protect U.S. and British oil interests, right? You know, they say national interests, but oil oil was there at the center of it. So what was going on in Iran? I read the Iranian PM was nationalizing oil production. That meant he was kicking out uh, these American and British oil companies, right? Saying we are going to uh, use this money for Iran, uh, and the U.S. and the British did not like that, right? They wanted to keep those profits for those private oil companies. Um, this plan was started by the secretary of state, John Foster Dulles, Dulles, his brother, Alan Dulles, who led the CIA uh, and Kermit Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt's grandson. So you got a lot of, you know, interconnected people here, full on just sort of brothers and these very, very high Positions in the U.S. government, and then obviously a former president's son uh, helping lead this on the ground to help overthrow uh, the Iranian PM. These guys uh, and the CIA bribed politicians, crazed, p- paid criminals to start street riots. Uh, you know, searched all of Iran and outside of Iran for gov- generals to lead a coup against uh, the communist-friendly uh, Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh. I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong. Uh, they wanted to install uh, sort of the pro-American Shah at the time who was, who was deposed. Uh, they paid journalists to say the prime minister was Jewish. Um, they distributed propaganda throughout the country, saying that he was an enemy of Islam, right? Uh, Iran was a huge Islamic country. Um, so they wanted to, you know— ratchet up the tensions there they hired people to pretend to be communists and attack a mosque right so literally these you know false flag attacks which people talk about all the time they actually the CIA was actually doing them in Iran in November 1953 the formerly deposed Shah right the, the guy who that the US had wanted uh, to come back into power did take power via rigged elections elections rigged by the CIA uh, and immediately put in place policies that benefited both the CIA and and these private British and American oil companies uh, that sort of set up the, the template for CIA interference around the world, right? And the CIA interference was all being done under the name of, uh, you know, anti-communism of the Cold War, right? That we need to install these dictators because they're pro-US um, and that sort of is the end goal, one one book here, if you want to learn more about um, the sort of Operation Ajax and these other uh, anti-communist measures the CIA undertook, right? These coups, sort of, you know, interfering in national sovereignty. I really recommend uh, The Jakarta Method by Vincent Bevins, uh, which chronicles the efforts of the CIA to undermine, you know, communist-leaning communist governments in South America and Southeast Asia during the 50s and 60s. These are all, you know, duly elected, um, very democratically elected, uh, communist governments that the CIA overthrew. Chicago Method has lots of great interviews with people who were sort of affected by these programs, right? People who lived during these times. And it really highlights just how wild the early CIA was. Uh, we won't talk about this much in this slide, but like in Indonesia, the CIA was like, you know, teaming up with, the uh, literally with the mob. Uh, they also, you know, made fake like pornos of, uh, you know like the the leaders of the time to try to get people to think bad about them right so just wild 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 stuff okay so the end of world war 2 right uh, the end of World War II sees the Soviet Union and the United States sort of emerging as the two great world powers of the time. Um, France, you know, was sort of devastated by Germany at the beginning. Uh, the UK was bombed so much, like all of their industry was destroyed. So these former sort of big countries no longer had that same economic and political capital that they once did, while the USSR and the US uh, remain sort of able to, to manufacture a lot of stuff to have strong economies and... And have political clout. Um, the problem for these two countries was that they considered themselves ideologically opposed. Um, the U.S. claimed that they stood for freedom and for democracy. Right? You know, talking about FDR's for freedom's ideas. Right? The Atlantic Charter that World War II wasn't about conquering territory, but was about you know spreading freedom around the world. Uh, while the Soviet Union argued that communism and sort of workers' revolutions offered actual true freedom. Right? Saying that the 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 capitalist freedom of the united states was not really freedom and that you know the workers there were still truly unfree right when they had to work for wages uh, and both countries, you know, when I'm saying countries here, I mean sort of the leaders at the top, uh, but then also sort of general, the general mass population uh, believe this too, uh, you know, maybe because of lots of propaganda uh, and how schools uh, were being taught, but there sort of was this sort of mass belief in this as well. Um, and both countries sort of saw each other as threats to their way of life, their preferred way of life, right? The U.S. being like, The Soviet Union will always be a threat to us, and the Soviet Union saying the U.S. will always be a threat to us. This sort of opposition resulted in what became known as the Cold War. Uh, This decades-long contest, right, almost half a century, that killed millions of people and wrecked and destroyed many countries around the globe, right? So we talk about this Cold War, you know. The US never really attacked Russia. The Soviet Union never really attacked the US during this. But despite that, millions of people still did die as a result of the Cold War. And, you know, countries are still living with the devastations wrought by uh, these countries' actions during this Cold War. But not everything at the end of World War II was doom and gloom, right? The Cold War didn't really start right away. People still had very positive ideas coming out of World War II, right? It was the end of this big war. The, the Germans had lost, right? The fascists had been defeated. Perhaps this is the chance for a new world. Uh, and many Americans came out of World War II with sort of this sense of optimism for the future, right? This idea that the world could be made a better place, a place that fit in with FDRs for freedoms, right? Freedom from want, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and that, you know, the Americans would be the one to do it, right? They saw a way forward into a better future, better, brighter future. And part of this was sort of came out in the creation of the United Nations, the UN, right? For a lot of people, the UN represented a body, an organization that would help prevent future wars, uh, provide benefits of modernity to all, right? Sort of, you know, refrigerators in every house, uh, all these new televisions everywhere across the world, right? Helping people out. The sort of international progressive spirit maybe coming back alive a little bit. Um, Others saw it as a way for the U.S. and Europe to just impose their will on the rest of the country, sort of forcing capitalism upon others, right? Saying, you have to do it our way. Our way is the best. You must follow us, right? The sort of world police organization. Uh, The U.N. ended up being very ineffective at stopping wars right? Uh, obviously, look around, uh, and was a little better at imposing uh, the will of U.S. and Europe upon other countries. So, sort of looking at the buildup to the Cold War, um, there was Throughout the United States, there's been a long, long line of anti-communist political and intellectual thought in the United States, right? Anti-left, this pro-conservative thought. Uh, There's also been a very long line of pro-socialist, communist, political and intellectual thought in the United States, right? Leftist thought. You can go all the way back. To the founding of the United States, the American Revolution, to find that, right? So the U.S. has always had these two strains of thought. Generally, uh, the conservative, you know, anti-communist, anti-socialist line has had far more supporters uh, in the U.S., uh, and especially in government positions uh, and positions of power. Government often, you know, has repressed socialists. We've talked about the first... Red Scare in this uh, podcast series, right? And lots of other repressions of unions and other sort of more left-leaning organizations. However, and this sort of only increased, right, with the end of World War II, uh, with the creation of the Soviet Union and their, you know, Soviet Union had been created in World War I, uh, but sort of their their rise to preeminence on the world stage uh, pushed sort of the general distrust of communism and communist countries to the forefront, uh, sort of only encouraged by people in the military and then by the government as well, right? Um, so it's only sort of further and further increased by sort of propaganda. Uh, Stalin's push. Stalin, so remember we talked about, at, you know, these... The, the Yalta conferences, the Tehran conferences, uh, Stalin was pushing for this sort of buffer zone around Russia, around the Soviet Union of, of communist states or his buffer zone of communist states that were controlled by him, uh, largely in Eastern Europe. Uh, and so his push to do this and the creation of nuclear weapons, uh, both in the U.S. and then very soon after in the Soviet Union, were sort of the two biggest causes of this uh, generally increased distrust in communism. Um, Many people in the American sort of intelligence and political community claim that communism was on the march, right? That Stalin was pushing for this sort of world communism, this world, you know, proletariat sort of thing. Uh, one of the big guys behind this idea was George F. Kennan. Uh, if you look at a picture of him, he looks like... Just uh, X-Files bad guy, right? Dead-eyed stare, uh, balding hair, you know, pinstripe suit. Uh, But he wrote this thing called The Long Telegram. Uh, This is one of those big pieces of, you know, sort of American political thought uh, that really shows where all this anti-communism was coming from. He sent this Kennan was a senior diplomat to Moscow and he wrote this long telegram in 1946 and it sort of de- in this telegram he developed a communist expansion idea uh that came to be known as sort of containment or containment policy right his argument was that uh the The Soviet Union was going to expand right that the, all they wanted to do was expand, expand, expand uh and that to contain this you know expansion uh the u s had to do something, and so his response was contain this policy uh, and this idea is that the u s should not and would not allow communism to spread sort of further than it already had right uh Stalin had this buffer zone in Eastern Europe. You know, taking places like Poland, Czechoslovakia, all that stuff. And Kennan was like, the U.S. cannot allow communism to spread further. It's going to, uh, it'll, it'll ruin, eventually they'll come to attack the U.S., now, sort of whether this was true or not is very much up for debate. Right, uh, there was this idea with you know Lenin uh, that sort of the, the communism to survive needed constant revolution. Right, it had to constantly spread around the world. Whether that could actually happen was much, much, much up for debate. But uh, U.S. intelligence and uh, military officials very much took this telegram as an opportunity to to get increased and continued uh, you know financial support for. Or their work, right? Uh, because Kennan's idea was that you couldn't just counter communism uh, with ideology, you also had to counter it through military and economic means, right? So sort of the U.S. uses this uh, telegram as an excuse to sort of fully devote its economy to stopping communism. So how did containment policy actually work, right? This is a very, very important idea for U.S. foreign policy for the next, you know, 50 years, Right. Uh, sort of the overriding goal. So, communi- containment policy argued that capitalism and communism cannot coexist, right? That in this world, they, there cannot be capitalist countries. Uh, at the same time that there can be communist countries, there always will fight, right? They can't be at peace. And it argued that the USSR would try to do four things to, to win this ideological battle between capitalism and communism. One, that they would perpetually seek to expand their sphere of control, right? And they would continue to, to move outward and outward. They would undermine Western colonial control in Africa and the Middle East. They would develop uh, their own economic block that would shut off from the rest of the world. Uh, they would use propaganda to turn the West towards communism. Now... Th- those things could very well be true, right? And they, you can see evidence of those things potentially being true. Uh, what is also true is that the U.S. was basically doing that stuff as well, right? Uh, you know, un- under no sort of means that they have to have uh, their colonies in Africa and the Middle East, right? That isn't necessarily part of being an American. Uh, the Americans continue to expand their sphere of control, right? That's all this sort of podcast series has been about: is U.S. expanding its control first over you know uh native groups in the United States and then over latin uh and south american peoples and then moving uh you know through that the pacific right so the us was just doing this already, uh, which is perhaps why they knew what you know the USSR was be doing. The USR would just steal their template, right? So it's not like the US wasn't also doing all of this stuff just on a pro-capitalist basis instead of a pro-communist basis. So something very important to keep in mind. So that's what sort of containment policy argued, was that to stop those four things, um, the US should do anything they could in their power to stop those four things. Uh, many people began to talk about about this sort of idea, domino theory, right? Um, that you know, if one place, one country, like Laos, falls, then that means Thailand will fall because Thailand's right next to Laos. So that means Cambodia will turn communist because they're right next to Thailand. That means South Vietnam uh, and then North Vietnam, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Because they're sort of well, they'll knock each other over. And so, this idea of domino theory that you have to stop the first domino from falling. Um, So to sort of enact their containment uh, policy, the U.S. set up several institutions to sort of help with these containment policies. In 1947, Congress passed the National Security Act. This reorganized the armed forces, created the Department of Defense, right? There had been a Department of War prior to that, and now it's called Defense because— Obviously, that's a much better thing to have. Even though they do the exact same job, um, the U.S. Air Force was created. It had been prior been uh, a part, I believe, of the Army. Uh, the CIA was created, coming out of World War II, uh, and the National Security Council was also created. Right, so all these new sort of very these new bodies, very much built to stop the spread of communism. Truman also announced what he called his Truman doctrine right in the line of the Monroe doctrine and the Roosevelt corollary this doctrine uh, said that the US would offer aid to any country sort of considering communism as long as they you know would stop considering communism after that uh, this sort of policy came about because there were communist revolutions in Greece and Turkey that were seeing success, uh, but were sort of stopped uh, with U.S. involvement. Um, it wasn't just aid that Truman was offering. There was also covert and non-covert uh, covert actions uh, and force used against these revolutions, right? The CIA was there. Actual sort of military forces were also there as well to sort of stop uh, this containment policy, but the best part, the most well-known of Truman's uh, containment policies and his Truman Doctrine was the Marshall Plan. Right, this is a big, big thing promoted by General George Marshall, one of the you know big heroes coming out of World War II. His idea was to send aid to help rebuild countries in Europe devastated by World War II in order to prevent the spread of communism, right? You know, France had been destroyed, uh, and there were very much uh, socialist communist forces in France that seemed to be gaining a lot of popularity, right? If you remember during the Great Depression, that's when communists were at their peak uh, because people wanted a new way forward. And so Marshall was like, no, we have to give these places a lot of cash so they don't, you know, turn communist on us. Uh, sent, so the U S sent over $13 billion primarily to Britain, France and Western controlled parts of Germany, huge, huge amounts, not as much as we spent on the war itself. Right. Remember like three hundred and fifty billion million spent on the war, $13 billion spent on aid, but the U S always wants to spend more on the military than on aid. Uh, but this money was sent over to, to aid those countries. Uh, my great grandfather, I believe was actually part of this, uh, Marshall plan. He was sent over, uh, to teach farmers in Europe, how to use tractors, right? A lot of this aid was in the form of farm equipment. A lot of it was this new mechanized, you know, like John Deere tractors and stuff. And so they didn't know, didn't all of them know how to use them. Uh, so my great grandfather went over as part of that. Uh, to teach these farmers how to use these tractors, um, and sort of the main, there were conditions as part of this money, right? It wasn't just here's some money. Uh, the, the but the main condition was sort of loyalty to the U.S., right? Loyalty uh, to capitalism. That if you know communist blocks won elections, then that money would dry up very quickly. Which you know, classic U.S. So the USSR doesn't just sort of sit pat during all of this, right? It's not just letting the U.S. do all this stuff. Uh, the Soviet Union immediately. Declared that no Soviet-occupied countries would take any Marshall Plan money, right? Saying that you can't, you know, you can't bribe up bribe us with this money to to get rid of our ideological stances. Uh, it's not going to be that easy. Uh, in 1948, Stalin took formal control of Czechoslovakia, uh, sort of the last country in Eastern Europe that was not communist-controlled. This sort of solidifying uh, that Eastern Bloc of countries. Uh, This group of countries in 1955 would eventually form the Warsaw Pact. If anyone has read the later Ender's Game uh, novels, uh, they're sort of... Not good, uh, but worse than Scott Card. Uh, unless you're a 13 year old boy like I was when I first read them. But the Warsaw Pact comes back up in those. Uh, but sort of, you know, it was would be the Marshall Plan countries versus Warsaw Pact countries, right? NATO, the NATO alliance versus war, Warsaw Pact countries. Um, that's sort of how the Cold War would shake out on the international stage. Uh, and so you see with like you know the creation of the Warsaw Pact the bringing in of Czechoslovakia into the Soviet Union uh, you still get the the hardening of, of these two sides of the Cold War so the first big big event of the uh, Cold War was the Berlin crisis uh, so I would look up if you can look up a map here this will make this a lot easier uh, but at the end of Cold and like look, look at Germany uh, Google Germany at end of World War Two, right? Um, so the end of World War Two, um, the the Allies, so the Americans, uh, the British, the France, and the Soviet Union uh, divided up Germany, right? Uh, this this country that they blamed for World War Two and should be blamed for World War Two was they divided up into four zones: uh, one for the U.S., one controlled by Great Britain, one controlled by France, and one controlled by Russia. Uh, but it wasn't just Germany that they divided up; they also divided up Berlin, the capital capital of Germany, sort of, you know, the heart of Germany, into four zones as well. You know, once once again, one for the U.S., once for Great Britain, one for France, and then one zone controlled by Russia. Uh, Sort of the big problem about this was that Berlin was located directly in the center of the Soviet Union's sort of controlled quarter of Germany. This ended up being a problem. Uh, In June 1948, not too long after the end of the war, the U.S., France, and Great Britain combined their zones, uh, into one political zone, introduced a common currency, uh, and started calling it West Germany, right? Uh, like, you know, introduced the, the, the currency of the Deutschmark, uh, and West Germany would become its own country for a long time uh, you know, competing in the, in the Olympics under the West German flag. Um, but, and Stalin, they also did that in Berlin, right? They did the same thing. Uh, but Stalin did not want this Deutschmark in the heart of a Soviet union, right? In the heart of the Soviet zone of Germany, did not want this competing sort of economic unit that was probably going to, at least in the beginning would do much better, uh, than whatever Soviet currency, whatever the Soviet currency could do. So, to counteract that, on June 24th of 1948 still, uh, Stalin blocked off all roads to Berlin, preventing any non soviets from bringing supplies and food into the non-Soviet parts of Berlin. This was devastating to the people there, right? Berlin had been shelled during the war. It was still in ruins. uh, And these supplies were essential to the people living in there, right? Stalin basically was hoping that the Western powers would capitulate uh, so these people wouldn't starve. And just give Berlin to Stalin. Uh, But Truman didn't want to seem weak. Right. That's going to be a very common phrase during these next 50 years that a president or diplomat doesn't want to seem weak against the Soviet Union. Um, but sort of, at least for Truman's benefit, didn't also not want to actual fighting to start again so soon after World War II, right? There was this idea that World War II was the war to end all wars, especially after the dropping of the atomic bomb. And here, note: I forgot to put this in the, the World War II podcast, but Truman didn't really know about the atomic bomb until right almost before it was launched. Stalin actually knew about its development before Truman did. Uh, but Truman didn't want sort of fighting to start under his watch right away, but also didn't want to seem, you know, weak in the face of Stalin. So he decided to break the blockade with the help of his allies. Uh, And thus uh, began the Berlin Airlift, uh, I I know I can come off very anti-American on this podcast, but the Berlin airlift truly is one of the most amazing logistical efforts uh, in in history in the history of the world, basically, uh, and especially the history of the Cold War. It also shows that there are ways around conflicts other than uh, just fighting. Uh, but you know, our politicians haven't really seemed to realize that. Um, but this Berlin airlift, uh, so starting in June, starting off with Stalin's blockade, for the next 11 months, the US and Great Britain and France would fly in more than 200,000 planes into Berlin, bringing in uh, 4,700 tons of supplies and goods to the people in uh in Berlin who needed them, right? Uh, and as a result of this, right, Stalin didn't want to shoot down these planes starting another war either. Uh, Stalin ended the blockade of Berlin in May 1949, allowing uh, the U.S. to sort of ship in goods much cheaply. Uh, start, Stalin ended the blockade because he saw it wasn't working, but also largely because the U.S. started placing an embargo on Eastern European goods, and Stalin really needed uh, that money uh, and those tax dollars to help the Soviet Union. Union so the Berlin crisis ends without shots being fired uh, and all these people getting the supplies they need sort of this great great logistical efforts there's actually cool you can find news clips of it and it's these planes like flying in, taking off basically every like eleven minutes it's it's pretty pretty cool so in response to this Berlin crisis, right seeing that perhaps um, if they wanted to you know keep uh, communism at bay and uh, sort of these increased tensions with the Soviet. Union, union the u s created uh the north atlantic treaty organization better known as nato uh nato headquarters uh are in Brussels, uh, potentially other places too, but I know for sure one of the headquarters is in Brussels, also near some of the UN headquarters. Uh, I've actually been there. It's kind of cool. Um, but NATO ratified in 1949, created sort of this formal alliance between Western powers, right? And a big part of this alliance, basically the reason that it was formed is the article, what's known as Article V, Article 5. Um which declared that an attack against one shall be considered an attack against all, right? So that if you know someone attacked France, that meant that they would also be attacking Germany. Or sorry, they'd also be attacking the US. Uh, and Great Britain and all these other, uh, you know, signatories to NATO. Uh, If this reminds you of sort of the treaty situation before World War I, uh, it should, right? You have these interlocking treaties uh, demanding declarations of war from their allies. Soon after the creation uh, of NATO, uh, the Soviets uh, successfully developed an atomic weapon, uh, and really the Cold War began in earnest. Uh, on twenty ninth august nineteen forty nine the Soviet Union secretly conducted its first successful weapon test uh, It had stolen uh plans from the manhattan project uh several of the workers there had uh communist sympathies and gave gave uh, sort of that information uh to to the soviets as well uh they, they didn 't want the u s being the only ones having this horrible weapon uh nato has uh I think the general public has a generally good history. It's done a v- lot of very, very bad things, uh, especially in places like Haiti uh, and in uh, South and in South America and in Africa as well. Uh, so the Cold War wasn't just happening in Europe. Uh, the Cold War very much also affected the rest of the world. Uh, we're going to look here for a little bit at uh, the Cold War in Asia generally, move on to uh, the Korean War after that. So uh, despite sort of the, you know, The Cold War supposedly being between the U.S. and the USSR, uh, much of the actual conflicts, the actual fighting of the Cold War took place in Asia, devastating many countries on that continent uh, even to this day um, both, both sort of sides of this conflict saw Asia as a place where communism had a chance to grow, right. There, you know, had long been, uh, communist traditions in a lot of these places. Uh, many countries in the post-war period had, uh, fought for and gained their independence from their colonizers. Uh, and communist parties were doing very well in these elections, right. Because, you know, they saw the capitalist places like France and and the UK rightfully as, you know, their enemies, uh, communist parties were able to take advantage of that. There's also a huge amount of racism involved in this, right? This idea that uh, the peoples of Asia were less than, you know, sort of the, the Europeans uh, and the white Americans. And so the deaths there didn't really matter, right? That's how it still gets called. It's called war, even though millions of people died. So China, moving on to communist China, sort of this, the big, the first big country to become uh, communist outside the Soviet Union. Um, countries like Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia were fighting for their freedom, threatening Western sort of colonial power in the regions, um, but... Despite that, in the late 40s, early 50s, many people in the U.S. saw China as a much more uh, pressing concern. Right, the end of World War II, there had been a communist revolution, uh, communist uprising led by Mao Zedong, uh, the Little Red Book. Right, you'd recognize his face. Uh, they fought against the nationalist forces of Shanghai Shek. Uh, the U.S. was funneling billions of dollars to Shanghai Shek, uh, even though he had no chance of winning, basically, uh, Mao won. And as a result of Mao winning, uh, Truman was accused by many in the United States of losing quote-unquote China, um, right? And so this sort of caused a lot of panic in the American military, American American, American armed forces. That's the nice way of saying it. Um, the more cynical way of saying it is that they took advantage of this to increase their budgets. But uh, whatever it was, uh, post-World War II, right, the U.S. had disbanded most of its military, which had been tradition after wars, turning much of the economy back to consumer goods. But sort of this uh, China, the communist revolution in China convinced many people that rearmament was needed, right? Um, or became the excuse to rearm the military. There are some diplomats who released a paper known as NSC-68, portraying the USSR as uncontrollably aggressive and seeking world domination. Uh, This is a report to the National Security Council, right? Sort of using those ideas in the long telegram and making them much more sort of inflammatory, Uh, and they recommended a massive military buildup, the creation of hydrogen bombs, and the rooting out of all communists in the United States. You sort of see the beginnings of the Second Red Scare here. Some people decried it as, like, hysteric, uh, but they were quickly very much ignored, and this would become sort of the modus operandi of the U.S. government and the U.S. military uh, in the Cold War and up to today, right, that we need massive arms at all times, uh, to maintain our control. Uh, so following that sort of buildup, uh, the rearmament of the United States, even though we were, even though it was peacetime, um, on June 25th, 1950, communist forces from North Korea invaded South Korea, beginning the Korean war. Korea had been broken up, uh, as a result of, uh, Korea had been, uh, its own country for a very long time, right? It has its history in you know, going all the way back to like, the BC era. Right. You know, so very, very, uh, long time. Uh, but after, after world war two, um, the U S and, and the USSR are sort of split up control of Korea. Um, and then, uh, as I said, in June 25th, 1950, uh, Communist forces from North Korea invade invaded South Korea, beginning the Korean War. As a result of this invasion, the National Security Council adopted that uh, report, the NSC sixty eight right that that report that demanded you know uh, massive military buildups as its official, and they adopted it as its official policy. Uh, as a result of this, the defense budget increased from thirteen point five billion to forty eight point two billion in nineteen fifty. So this huge, huge, huge jump, right over two hundred percent jump uh, in contract. Uh, Defense contractors raked in huge profits from this, uh, massive amounts of money being spent. And this is really the beginning of what became to be known as the military-industrial complex, right? This idea that sort of industry and the military in the U.S. are linked, and that's where sort of all the economy is driven from. And if you take away all that spending, the economy will sort of tank, right? that They're so interlocked, uh, they're basically inseparable. Much of the U.S. industry uh, started coming from arms manufacturing rather than things like you know cars and all that stuff. Um, so as I mentioned, right, post-World War II, uh, Korea had been divided between the USSR and the U.S. It was supposed to be reunified in 1948. It had historically been one country, uh, but both sides sort of refused to meet that date. Uh, aided by Soviet planners, uh, the North Korean army easily retook most of South Korea very quickly, conquering Seoul in just a matter of months. So sort of the U.S. was caught on its back feet, back foot, right? couldn't react in time. Soon after the invasion, um, Truman ordered troops into Asia, but it sort of took a while to build them back up. Uh, Truman also secretly ordered the development of the H-bomb, the hydrogen bomb, uh, and secretly sent atomic bombs to American Bases across the world, taking them as sort of precautions. UN forces, uh, which were largely largely made up of U.S. forces, uh, sort of fought back for South Korea. They are led by General Douglas MacArthur, uh, Douglas MacArthur. Douglas MacArthur. Oh, Douglas MacArthur is one of these sort of myth. Uh, legends of myth in the US army, right? You either see him as just an absolute villain or a a true hero. I think you know which side I fall, I probably fall on. Um, but he's sort of an asshole no matter what you think about him. And he he was a good uh, tactician. I will say that about him. Uh, MacArthur led a surprise attack at Incheon and pushed back North Korean forces almost back to China. Mao became afraid of an invasion uh, and sent 200,000 troops into North Korea, uh, which helped push U.S. forces back, uh, and they recaptured Seoul in 1951. Uh, so, right, this war is already sort of three years old. Um the U.N. eventually pushed back the combined Chinese and North Korean forces to the original dividing line where they had been uh, when the war started, and they sort of remained at a standoff there. Um MacArthur had wanted to invade China. Uh, He also wanted to use atomic weapons against both uh, the North Koreans and China. Uh, He never formally requested the authority to use nuclear weapons, uh, but many in the government, including Truman, believe that he wanted that authority. Uh, The U.S. Air Force was already uh, transferring nuclear components to Guam in case that they needed sort of this uh, contingency uh, if a nuclear assault was authorized. Um, Truman refused sort of MacArthur's, uh, you know, not technically stated request, but, you know, he was able to transmit it. uh, And he actually relieved MacArthur from command. MacArthur, you know, uh, was thinking about running for president, uh, trying to undermine Truman's authority uh, in the public eye and was relieved uh, from his command as a result of that. Late in July 1953, so, you know, five years after the war started, both sides agreed uh, to an armistice, which ended the war almost exactly where it had begun on the 38th Parallel. Uh, thirty five thousand Americans one hundred and fourteen thousand Chinese people, and over three hundred thousand Korean people died in the fighting um, you know for literally uh zero ground gained uh, These countries remain separated to this day, divided by what 's known as the demilitarized zone, the dmZ along the thirty eighth parallel obviously sort of you know destroying this country that had been one whole complete country for a very very long time uh sort of this awful One of these awful, awful parts of the Cold War that I think is really under-talked about, right? Actual sort of, you know, full-on fighting here, uh, but still, you know, the Cold War is not considered a hot war. Um, So after the Korean War, U.S. political leaders decided that a more covert approach to fighting the Cold War was needed, right? Um, They had lost all these lives. The public was really against losing these lives, especially in countries where, you know, the U.S. didn't want to make them sort of colonial possessions. And a lot of people in the U.S. would even have been against colonial possessions on so Overt a status. Um, so they changed a the more covert approach. This didn't reduce military spending so much as change it uh, and hide it in some different places. Uh, and the US and the CIA especially uh, started doing more covert operations, uh, using more leading more on alliances and the threat of nuclear weapons. So what were some of these covert operations? Uh, just like they had in Iran, uh, the US worked to destroy left-wing anti- Anti-U.S. governments across the world. Uh, so anyone that they considered even remotely left-wing or even remotely anti-U.S., the CIA in the U.S. would pretty much start working against. Uh, Iran in 1953, Guatemala 1954, and then many, many other ones as well. Uh, the governments the CIA toppled were generally, de- uh, generally, if not always, democratically elected, uh, and the leaders they installed uh, were hard right dictators, um, always. Uh, like that's just what the the plan was, right? These dictators who would then promote American interests, uh, and sort of destroy their own populations. The CIA justified its actions by saying that the dictators were better than communists, no matter what. Right. So you have this, you know, even just, it's like, it's so hard to describe how just absolutely against this U.S. idea of freedom this was and democracy. Right. Um, but That's what sort of this Cold War logic did to a lot of people. Uh, And then even after these interventions happened, horrible things keep going on. Guatemala uh, fell into a 40-year civil war after CIA intervention as a result of the CIA intervention, right? Uh, Just horrible, horrible human rights uh, injustices going on with all this involvement. Uh, The U.S. also used its sort of economic and political power to help other countries starting these alliances, uh, they gave millions of dollars to France as it fought to retain its colonial possessions in Southeast Asia. Uh, the Vietnam War will come out of that, which we'll talk about in a couple of podcasts later. Uh, they, gave, uh, they helped fund the UN and NATO, right? Most of the funding for UN and NATO came from the US. They also formed the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization to try and prevent Southeast Asian countries from becoming communist, right? So setting up these other alliances, Nuclear weapons also is a big part of this. In January 1954, the U.S. began a strategy that they called the massive retaliation, uh, building up its own hydrogen bomb arsenal. H uh, bombs were a thousand times more powerful than atomic weapons. Right, so atomic weapons are already incredibly devastating. Hydrogen bombs a thousand times more powerful than that. Um, they threatened China with H-bombs after it attacked Taiwan in 1954-1958, uh, which prompted China to build its own nuclear weapons, which they did successfully with the help of the USSR in 1964-1964. Uh, so you see sort of the arms race beginning through this, looking basically at the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Soon after the U.S. developed its H-bomb, the Soviet Union did the same thing. Then the U.S. leaders claimed that they needed more bombs in the USSR if they were to have an advantage, right? Talking about a weapons gap. Uh, so both sides ended up making more and more bombs. This became known as the Policy of Mutually extorted, Assured Destruction, or MAD, M-A-D, right? There were some protests about this, but they were largely ignored. The people protesting were called commies and un-American. One thing to know about nuclear weapons, a lot of nuclear weapon uh, and space technology, which we'll talk about next, uh, was done by a lot of former Nazi scientists. Um, uh, The U.S. government undertook something called Operation Paperclip, which was uh, basically they took Nazi scientists and brought them to the United States, did not punish them, uh, and instead gave them great jobs and had them Develop nuclear weapons for the U.S. Uh, one thing about uh, if you want to, you know, watch a good movie about the arms race, a sort of satiric look at it. Uh, check out Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Uh, sort of the best movie about sort of the nuclear delusions of the United States during this time. Uh, so the arms race wasn't the only race going on. There was also the space race. Uh, Great Britain, uh, France and Israel would also soon develop atomic weapons uh, and then in August 1957 the Soviets tested the first intercontinental ballistic missile ICBM ICBM Uh, And two months after that, using some of the same technology, they developed the first artificial satellite and launched that first artificial satellite. Uh, They named it Sputnik. This This began the space race. After they launched Sputnik, many in the U.S. became afraid that they were falling behind the Soviets. In terms of technological superiority, right? There's this idea that American technology, American production, manufacturing had won World War II. And so losing that was a big fear of a lot of people. So uh, the US government put billions of dollars into space focused technology. Over the next few decades. And the US would sort of, you know, depending on what metrics you use, win this. Uh, in January 1958, the US launched their own satellite, Explorer 1, established NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. Uh, and this would ultimately lead to people landing on the moon in 1969 uh, and the development of memory foam, which is cool, I guess. Uh, it makes for a great bed. It also massively increased distrust between the USSR and the US and would eventually lead to the militarization of space, right? One of these awful things, I think. Uh, one of the another sort of stain upon humanity that we can't see the stars as anything but something to bring guns to. Uh, so some conclusions here, the cold war began in, almost immediately at the end of world war two, uh, though its roots can be found further back. Right. Uh, even looking back to world war one, uh, the cold war was not, cold and by any sense, millions of people died as a result of this conflict between the US and the USSR. Uh, it was truly a worldwide war, uh, affecting and afflicting people all across the globe. Uh, the cold war brought exhilarating new technologies, uh, as well as the constant threat of nuclear annihilation. Okay. That's it for today. Next week's podcast, we'll look at sort of the culture of the cold war in the United States. Uh, but for now, That's it, and have a great rest of your day.